See up there, there's our kind of our series uh, logo, travels into the re- several remote nations of the world in four parts. And so we're going through uh, the missionary journeys of par- Paul. There are four parts to them. The first missionary journey, second missionary journey, and today we begin the third missionary journey. But before uh, we do that, last week we looked at the places Paul had gone to, and now I want to look at some of the people Paul related to on those journeys. And so if you look up there on the first missionary journey, uh, Paul not only went to certain places, but he met and went with certain people. And we are introduced to Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. And we we remember before we move on there that Paul and Barnabas went on and later on John Mark, uh, who had left, uh, Barnabas wanted to take him and Paul said no. And so they went their separate ways with which the gospel spread. But if you read 2 Timothy Uh, Paul wants John Mark back because he's useful. And in 15, you saw James and Peter and Silas. James, who was kind of, uh, as tradition has it, the head of the church in Jerusalem. And then there was Peter there, and they were all in agreement that the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, and there's nothing to add to it. On his second missionary journey, he met several people along the way. This is where he picks up Timothy. And you get uh, Timothy travels with Paul and you get those two letters to Timothy. They have become near and dear to my heart uh, as a pastor. I just read them over and over because I need to know how to lead a church. And, and, and the elders read them because this is, these are manuals in a sense to help us lead the church. And then Lydia Uh, God uh, saw fit to open the eyes or open the heart of Lydia to respond to the words that Paul had said. And then the little slave girl, we assume, came to know the Lord and a jailer who was about ready to kill himself. And Paul says, no, no, we are all here. And then I don't know. This is one of those when you get to heaven, you're going to ask, how did that happen? Like, how did he turn on the lights? Was there a switch or did he go around with a torch? It'll be fun to find out. But Nonetheless, that jailer and his whole household came to know Jesus. And then there's Jason and Dionysius and Demarius, Crispus and Sosthenes we met last week at Corinth. And so today we're going to jump right into um, Acts 19, really the end of 18 and all the way through 19. And on the third missionary journey, you're going to see in Ephesus, the place he goes, you see Erastus, Gaius, and Aristarchus. So let me pray and then we'll... Um, we'll dive right into today's lesson, sermon, proclamation from the pulpit. Father, it is your word and we love it and it comforts us. It not only shows us our sin, but it shows us our Savior. And so we do believe in you. We believe in your Son. We believe in your Holy Spirit. We believe in life eternal and the resurrection. Thank you for doing what we could not do and giving us a book to show us how great you are. Pray now as we see a prevailing church in a pagan culture that you, your name would be lifted up, that we, our faith would be strengthened, and that we would leave here different. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this last week I was looking on the internet and it's political season, so there are articles out on the internet about politics. And one of them was on October 1st, a columnist from the uh, Washington Post wrote an article, Is Populism Set to Prevail in American Politics? And so the idea is there's this other way of doing politics. Is that way of ruling our country, of a people in a place with a program, is that going to prevail in today's politics? And it got me thinking, not necessarily about um, politics, but that idea of prevailing to become effective or effectual, to persuade successfully to be predominant, to continue to be in use and fashion, to literally in the Greek, it's to overcome, it's to be mighty. And it got me thinking, along the same lines, people are writing articles about will the church prevail? Will the church survive? In 1942, there was an article called, Will the Church Survive? 1942. And so I guess my answer would be yes, (laughs) to that 1942. In 1999, Bishop Spong is a liberal Catholic, wrote a book, Why the Church Must Change or It Will Die. There's this, every now and then, there's this idea in in culture and sometimes in the church that if we don't really fix something, the church is going to die. And I think quickly, people have forgotten what Jesus said in Matthew 
chapter 16, verse 18 of that. And he says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, this being a neuter, not Peter, but on Peter's confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They shall not overcome, predominate, or have any power in the end over it, the church. Jesus said it. The the church, I'm sorry, that's why the 1942 article uh, asked the wrong question. And I'm, I'm sorry, Bishop Spong, uh, the church doesn't need to change or die. Like we talked about last week, we just do the same things over and over. And in today, you're going to see, Luke's going to record for us, how does the gospel prevail in a pagan culture in the city of Ephesus, a city, a major city of the time. If you were to go there now, it is no longer uh, near the water. It's been, it's been kind of, uh, there's been a, some building projects where there are, it's not on the water, but it was on the bay. It was the city uh, of the ancient times where there was a bunch of pagan ritual and worship and people would come there for religion for entertainment there's this 25,000 person theater there Uh, they had a a goddess there that we will see today and so this is the quintessential pagan culture will the gospel prevail and so you're going to see in 1823 through 1922 the prevailing gospel and then you're going to we're going to spend some time to end it what happens when the gospel comes in to this pagan culture And so we begin in 1823. We ended last week where Paul was back in Antioch. He had gone to Ephesus. They said, hey, hang out with us. He said, no. He he learned how to say no, but if God wills, I'll be back. And so today you're going to see him making his way back, starting in verse uh, 23. For the gospel to prevail with strength, there must be biblical accuracy. Watch this. After spending some time there... He, Paul, departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. The church always needs to be strengthened. It needs to grow strong. Otherwise, it will become weak. It will become like what the nation of Israel did in the Old Testament where it says there arose a generation that did not know the Lord or his ways. And so we're constantly strengthening the church, and it is always through the preaching of the good news. Not only must the church be strengthened, but it needs to be strengthened according to proper standards. Verse 24, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. This is a man who was eloquent. This is a guy, he's a graduate of the Ivy Leagues. This is your Harvard man. He came to Ephesus. Now he's a Jew. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He knew his Old Testament. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And so he's on his way, like you will see in 19. Some others are on their way, not quite believers. And he was instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He didn't quite yet understand. He, had, he was one of those guys who saw The baptism of John, he was one of John's disciples, and he said, this is the way. He was pointing to Jesus, but he needed to learn something. And so he begins to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. What a beautiful picture of discipleship. What a beautiful picture of how to correct somebody. It does not say they stood up in the middle of synagogue. They said, no, 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 you're way off not way off, but you're off a little bit. You need to know a little bit more. They took him aside, probably took him in their home. And they said, man, you're passionate. You have a way with words. You know your scripture, but let me show you what you're missing. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote the disciples to welcome him. Here's one who finally sees the truth. It all makes sense to him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. You see how he came to know the Lord was through grace. It was not because of his eloquent speech. It's not because of his Bible knowledge. It's through grace. And they came to know it. Why? This is the key. This is the prevailing gospel. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. For the gospel to prevail and strengthen the churches, there has to be 
biblical accuracy. You've, you've heard the old illustration before. If you're a pilot, you know this, that if you get off just a few degrees and you stay those few degrees off and you're wanting to go here and you're a few degrees off, by the time you get to where you're going, you're way off. And so we have to be absolutely accurate. Are there certain things, are there third-level things that we can disagree with and, and we can talk about over coffee? Absolutely. Are there second-level things that we could disagree with and we may have to go and uh, do church in a separate place? Sure, that's why we have some Baptist churches. That's why we have Presbyterian churches. But are there certain things, the plain thing is the main thing, and the main thing is the plain thing that we have to hold to, that we cannot uh, say, well, it's a little bit off. Let's just take a brick out of the wall. The wall won't fall. Absolutely. That the whole Scripture is the authority of God that there is a trinity, that Jesus Christ is both human and divine. Why does he have to be human and divine, Judd? Because only a human should pay the penalty and only a divine person can satisfy the wrath of God. So he has to be both, 100% both, all the time when we take it by faith. This I know because my Bible tells me so. We have to be accurate about those things. We have to be accurate about the way to salvation. It's not about church attendance. It's not about uh, what goods you do. It's what good God has done. That there is a God who exists and you're not him. And that he created humans in his image to be representatives on this earth to carry out the kingdom work from Genesis through Revelation. And that we fell because we didn't trust in the word of God, but we trusted in the word of Satan. And so thus, our, our distant great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, thus through them, every human that comes into existence is born in iniquity. And they must be saved. And so Jesus came to die a death that we should have died, and he, by, he lived a life that we should have lived. And he now sits at the right hand of God. And here's the last thing we have to hold with accuracy. He's coming back. You can get out all your larkin charts. You can go crazy with your colors on how it's going to happen. This is the one thing you have to hold to. He's coming back. Everybody believes that who's an evangelical Christian. And so we have to be accurate on those things. And not only are we accurate for the gospel to prevail... We must hold that there is a biblical exclusivity. No matter how good it sounds, there are some religions that are off. They claim the name of Jesus, but they no more know Jesus than somebody from Kansas City believes in the Broncos. You know, they, they're just opposite. But it sounds good. Don't amen that. But it sounds good. Look at verses 1 through 7 of chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, while he was getting uh, edified by Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, this pagan city, this beautiful city. It used to be on the coast. It was a major metropolitan area. It had about 300,000 people at the time. Big for that day and age. And there he found some disciples. And so he's thinking to himself, hey, I've found some folks who know the Lord Jesus Christ. But for some reason, we don't get, and in my Bible or in the Bible and on my sheet, there's space in between verse 1 and 2. We don't get how Paul led to this question. But somehow he's with these disciples and they, he probably heard they'd love Jesus. But then all of a sudden they're talking strange. So he asks them a question said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, well, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, in what then were you baptized? Apparently they had, he had said, had you been baptized? They said, yes. And they said, into John's baptism. Now let me stop right there. John taught about the Holy Spirit. So it's probably not that they didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. They just didn't believe that he had come upon the earth. And so Paul, in verse 4 the consummate teacher says to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, and that is Jesus. On hearing this, there's no argument. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, not in the name of John. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 in all. So we have a few things to consider here. Here are some who were, as Alistair Begg says, almost Christians. You can be a 
believer in name only. We call them professing Christians. These are people who say they know the Lord Jesus, but they don't have a relationship with him. What was the the, the essential factor to show that they had a relationship and understood the true gospel? It was the presence of the Holy Spirit. Romans says, if you do not have the Spirit, you are not a child of God. But he lays his hands on them, and then the Spirit comes. And this is all after being baptized. In chapter 10, the Spirit came first, and then they were baptized because Luke is trying not to universalize how this happens. And so what has happened, let me just read to you. Twice we're going to hear from John Stott today. John Stott says in his commentary on the book of Acts, this incident, 19, 1 through 7, has become a proof text in some Pentecostal and charismatic circles, especially when the inaccurate and unwarranted translation of verse 2 follows. If you have a translation that says, have ye received the Holy Ghost since ye believed, or since you believed, that is inaccurate. That's why the ESV says when you believed, because the Pentecostal churches go on to say from this, it is sometimes argued that the Christian initiation is in two stages, beginning with faith and conversion, followed later by receiving of the Holy Spirit, often called the second blessing. But those 12 disciples cannot possibly be regarded as providing a norm for a two-stage initiation. On the contrary, Michael Green has written, it is crystal clear that these disciples were in no sense Christians. Having not yet believed in Jesus, they were even baptized into John's baptism. Whereas through the ministry of Paul, they came to believe and were baptized with water and the Spirit more or less simultaneously. The norm, and this is key, hold on to this. The norm of the Christian experience then is a cluster of a few things. Repentance, faith in Jesus, and the gift of the Spirit. Though they perceived the order may vary a little, this is the universal Christian initiation. Here's the key phrase. The laying on of apostolic hands, however, together with the tongue speaking and prophesying, were special to Ephesus as to Samaria in order to demonstrate visibly and publicly that the particular groups incorporated in Christ by the Spirit And so there are no more Samaritans or disciples of John the Baptist left in the world today. Any careful reading of the book of Acts will defend what Stott says there. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And if you're familiar with Tulsa, Oklahoma, that is where uh, Oral Roberts University is. And if you're familiar with Oral Roberts University, that is a university built by Oral Roberts, who is a charismatic. And if you go there today, they sit there today out in front of this campus are literally praying hands. And the old joke when I was growing up is, do you know, they often had to rebuild those praying hands because they kept going like this. (laughs) He even said, I remember one night, if I don't get so much money by midnight, God's going to take my life. I grew up there, and this is why this rings true in my soul. I went to Guts Church as a, as a kid. Just, I don't know if I was just in high school or in middle school. I went to Guts Church, and maybe that's why I have always been fond of weightlifters, but there were these dudes who loved Jesus that were taking pipes, and they were bending them, breaking phone books. And I'm like, I got to follow Jesus because I can get that strong. And I listened to the message and I went down and guys laid hands on me and I did something and they called it speaking in tongues and I was now in the inner circle. I went home and had no more known the Lord Jesus than a, than insert blank. I didn't know the Lord Jesus. I just had an experience. There was no repentance. Certainly no, there may have been the budding of belief, but the fruit of the Spirit that I thought had come there, trust me, if you would have seen me in high school, was not there. 
And so Paul shows us the essentials. Repentance, believe in Jesus, in the presence of the Spirit. In any careful reading of Acts, you will see, and this is recorded for the internet, so I'll be crystal clear here. I would not build my theology on three chapters of Acts and two chapters in Corinthians, a book of correction. The Holy Spirit came with tongues in Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. And as Stott said, it's to show the same Spirit that came at Pentecost is going to be the same Spirit that goes out from this point forward to every believer. And so as a sign to show unity in that book of transition, you get it three times. Then in 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians, you get this idea that this is normal. And Paul even says there, not everybody has this. I prefer that you have the gifts of prophecy. Not prophecy in predicting the future, but prophecy in proclaiming the truth. That is how it's unfolded in Scripture. It is not normal when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I bet you, and I won't do it here, but if we sat down and said to everybody in here, when you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, were apostolic hands laid on you, and did you start speaking in tongues? And I guarantee you, I don't want to be hyperbolic here, but I bet you money, if I were a betting man, I'm not, 90% of you, yay, yay, that's very King James, it's authorized version, that's what Paul spoke, yay, even... 99% of you didn't experience this. I'll just leave it at that. And so what's going on here is people are coming into the church to prove that this same spirit is the same spirit that Jesus said would come, that Peter uh, experienced in Acts 10, so Paul experiences here. And so we move on. And he, Paul, entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This accurate gospel, this one prevailing gospel, if it's to prevail in human terms, trust me, I understand God's sovereignty. If we were to stop, if we were to close up shop today, it's not like God's in heaven going, man, Eagle Bible Church is shut down. What am I going to do? He would raise up some other young chap who would preach the, God, preach the gospel and God would be honored. But the point is, humanly speaking, for it to prevail, we must speak the gospel boldly and with reason and persuasion. We must appeal to the mind and appeal to the heart, just like Paul did. It must be preached boldly. Verse 9, And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Interesting name there. His name means tyrant. And so this gospel, which Paul did for three months in the synagogue, goes now, he'll do it, verse 10 tells us, for two years that this gospel must be preached boldly and it must be preached consistently. That's why we meet here week after week. Here, Paul went to the hall of Tyrannus. Tradition says this is someone who probably didn't know the Lord Jesus. He's named, his, they probably named him. Did his parents name him Tyrant? Did his students name him Tyrant? We don't know. But what had happened at that time is you would have people go into the halls and do their work early in the morning. And then the hall, because of the heat of the day from 11 to 4, was left open. And then they would come back at 4 and finish their schooling. And so in this hall from 11 to 4, Paul says, hey, I'll take it. And he went in daily. Reasoning daily, teaching his disciples the truth, so much so that verse 10 says, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This time, kind of like John the Baptist went out to the wilderness, who would come? All of Israel came. And so all of Asia comes to hear this Paul talk about this Jesus daily. It reminds me of John Calvin. If you were to ever read a history of John Calvin, his main thing, yes, he taught week in and week out in a church service, But he would go Monday through Saturday, and he would teach every day. He'd sit on a little stool, and he would teach from Genesis, and he worked his way through the Bible without a few. He missed a few books, Ezekiel and Revelation, I think. So that's why we don't teach Ezekiel and Revelation here. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But if you get his commentary, you're like, come on, John. I mean, don't leave those two out. And I have heard... 
that he, he didn't want when he was buried. He, they put him in, he put out four different tombstones because he didn't want to be uh, known. He didn't want the, the, any popularity to come to himself. But every now and then, he needed a break and he would go bowling. And so we've started a bowling ministry here at Eagle Bible Church. Just kidding. But he was teaching daily. Calvin probably saw Paul. He saw Jesus. Jesus, all he did, he would wake up, he would walk with his disciples, and he would teach. And to authenticate that teaching, he would do miracles, which you will see happens now. Verse 11. Here's the summary of this paragraph. For the gospel to prevail, God, not Paul, God must be at work, and the name of Jesus must be extolled, better word, magnified. Notice in verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Luke even tells us, these aren't normal miracles. When I was reading that, I was like, well, I wish, and they didn't. It would have been helpful had you had like Genesis through Revelation and then kind of an appendix back here of here are normal miracles and then here are extra. That would have been helpful, but they didn't. And so even Luke says, these aren't normal so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. Think about that. It doesn't say Paul carried them away. It just, here they came, and they, they healed their diseases, and they left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Much like, and the verse isn't up there, what happened in Luke eight forty four. When the woman came up and she touched the fringe of Jesus' garment and she was healed. I think the reason Luke's including this here is the same work that Jesus did, the same work that Peter did, is now the same gospels going forth that Paul is doing. Now here's what's interesting about this. Paul's preaching the gospel daily. These extraordinary miracles are happening. And then some Jewish guys get together, verse 13, and they say, hey, we want a piece of this business. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Here are guys who are trying to perform exorcisms. They don't want to believe in the Lord Jesus. They just want the power. Are, can exorcisms happen today? It's taught at some seminaries. My wife was taught how to do an exorcism. We have not gone and done an exorcism ministry. Perhaps, is it normal? No. And here's what happened to these seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva who were doing this. (laughs) This is laughable. But the evil spirit answered them. So they're out calling on, come out of him in the name of the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the evil spirit says to these guys, Jesus I know. James 1, 19 says, even the demons believe and shudder. They know who Jesus is. You go back to the Gospels in Mark where he talks and the demons said, hey, we know who you are. Just don't kill us. Just can we go into those pigs? I mean, they, they're, they're relating to Jesus. They know who he is. I love this. And Paul, I recognize, we've heard about him. I, I, when I was reading that, I was thinking about C.S. Lewis's book, the screw tape letters where you have Wormwood uh, talking about how to deter Christians from following Jesus. And it's this idea they recognize uh, humans. But who are you? <laughs> we recognize this Paul because he's proclaiming Jesus. But you frauds, who are you? And the man in whom the, was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. That's just not normal. That's just not normal. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. I think the better word is magnified. Not magnified like you you go to a magnify, you go to a microscope to look underneath and to make something small look bigger, but like a telescope where you're starting to get a more accurate picture of just how great this Jesus is. And and these are the stories in Acts. Acts is one of those books where 
basically every heresy comes out. This is one where Alistair Begg said, if you're going through this in a Bible study, all of a sudden everybody in the group doesn't stick to biblical hermeneutics, but they've got a story about an exorcism or their friend in South Africa, and the leader's just trying to get the Bible study back together. And then you finally have someone that says, well, don't you think the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things? And I think he's right. And I think Stott's right. In fact, Beg quotes Stott and says this, what, what are we to do with passages like this? The wisest attitude to the sweat rag miracles is neither that of skeptics who declare them spurious, Liberal commentators, if you read liberal interpretations, that said, this is, this is just Luke. He's probably woke up late that day. He's a little cranky, you know, when he's writing it. I don't know, but that certainly didn't happen. So we're not skeptical, nor of the mimics who try to copy them. Now, this is John Stott, who lives in London, England, writing this, like those American televangelists. Well, do they not have British televangelists? I mean, come on, you're picking on us who offer to send to the sick handkerchiefs which they have blessed. The sad thing is, that I don't know, I haven't done the research in British televangelism, but the sad thing is only in America will you have people do that and you can turn it on to this day and it's shameful. He says, don't be a skeptic. This stuff happened. It doesn't mean it's normal. Don't be a mimic. <clears throat> don't go, see, it says it there in Acts 19, and so because it says it, I'm going to try to live this out. Got to use good biblical hermeneutics. My daughter came to me this week and she said, Daddy, I was reading through Mark and it says if you sin, you're supposed to cut your hand off. Yeah, what do you say? <laughs> okay, it's a, it says, the, the Bible says it. I believe it. Let's do it. No, you say, sweetie, yeah, it does say that. But Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. Thank you for coming to me before you went down to the kitchen. <laughs> Here's what Stott says, what Beg agrees with, and I do too. Instead of being skeptics or mimics, we should be students, but rather that of Bible students who remember that both Paul regarded miracles as his apostolic credentials. What do you mean, apostolic credentials? Look at this verse up on the screen. This verse is so helpful, it will help you for the rest of your life. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you. So there's signs that an apostle got to do, not necessarily that we get to do. They were done with the utmost patience, and they were done with signs and wonders and mighty works. They if you were to look at miracles throughout your Bible, they come around the time of Moses, they come around the time of the prophets, and they come around the time of Jesus and the apostles to authenticate the law, the prophets, and the New Testament. That verse should forever help you. Well, somebody says, well, I went to a church and the apostle Judd was there with Pastor Ashley. You can say 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Do I believe that the apostolic office is in existence? I think, I think the, there's some guys who have more apostolic ministries. They're, just, they're on the front lines. They're go-getters. Yes. Do I believe there are big A apostles here today? No. They were part of the foundation. Go read Ephesians, the end of chapter 2. Why do we get so worked up? When we come to the book of Acts, maybe you don't, but I know a number of people, they just, if we were just an Acts church, and can it be that God just works differently today? J.I. Packer. I want to show you a picture of these two guys because they'll, they'll endear your hearts. Do you have the pictures of those guys up there, Daniel? Yes? There he is, J.I. Packer. Isn't he cute? He's awesome. He wrote the book, Knowing God. How about John Stott? Next one. Or go back. There he is. Isn't he cute? He's, just, he's with Jesus now. J.I. soon will be. But here's what Packer says. We are easily distracted by things that matter less and preoccupied with things that matter least. 
This, exa- this, this is exactly the case, too often at least, when it comes to the talk of revival, when it comes to our desire to see the Spirit's work in our lives in the church. J.I. Packer makes the case that the Spirit's regular ministry, not his ex- extraordinary or miraculous ministry, is what should preoccupy us. In the stillion of God's knowledge, it is described as a part of the regular ministry of the Spirit to all, that is, who are born again and who are true believers. One could wish that this aspect of his ministry was prized more highly than it is at present, at the present time. With the perversity of the pathetic that is impoverishing, we have become preoccupied with the extraordinary, sporadic, non-universal ministries of experience to the neglect of the ordinary and general ones. Here's what I'm not saying. This is me talking. Can God do whatever God wants to do? Amen. He is sovereign. He can do what he wants to do. He can heal who he wants to heal. Does God do today what he did? The way we read it in the new, early New Testament, probably not. And I fear, I see people, I, I was part of it. I share that personal story with you because I didn't know any better. And I thought that was right. And let me share, share one more and we'll move on. My sweet grandmother, I hope in my talks with her towards the end of her life, she was, so, she was brought up in a Pentecostal church and never could speak in tongues. And she thought she was like, there were people in her church who could and they were here. Like, here's Jesus and here's them. And then she's down here because she never got it. She's just not quite there. And here I am, a green bean believer, saying, Grandmother, you don't, you don't have to speak a tongue to be a true believer or to be blessed. Here's what has to happen. And I think that leads to our next section. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. What happens? How do you know somebody's turned and genuinely turned and lives has changed? Is because their entire lives are turned upside down. And they said, I can't do this anymore. And they counted the value of them and they found it was 50,000 pieces of silver. Here, now here's what I'm not saying. Because I did this and again, I was a green bean goofball. I came to know the Lord Jesus. I had a suite. Some of you, if I were to mention some of the names of the people, I, I had a sweet CD collection. It was nice. If you have ever in your life listened to a little classic rock, you would have said, man, that was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And I was one of those people. I can never, I can never listen to this again. And I went and sold it. Now I got to go into iTunes and $1.99 for every one of those great songs. You don't have to sell your CD collection, but, but if the Lord leads you to, I'm not, don't, don't hear, well, the pastor said not to sell. The point is, these guys were so convicted, they could not do life the same. I remember I went out, I, I remember I, I went to a place, and I got jars of clay, and I got Cademan's Call, and I was just rocking all day to Cademan's Call. And, and I wish I would have done that, and then kept all those CDs. Um, <laughs> But here's the point, verse 20. So, here, here's the, is it about miracles? Yes, they've been used by God mightily. But he, here's what I want you to hang up. This is the verse. So, the word of the Lord. So, meaning you connect it to what happened before. Because these people's lives are being transformed, because they're seeing God work through Paul, and they're hearing the message, and they're saying, this is the same thing we heard about Jesus because the word continues to increase and notice prevail mightily. The word is honored, not the means by which it came about. The word of God is lifted up. People were changing their lives. They were giving up lucrative practices and materials. The point is transform lives, not miraculous methods. If you need a miracle, I would encourage you to go read Luke 16, 31. If you 
you don't believe Moses, you're, you're not going to believe that he raised somebody from the dead. If you can't believe Moses, you're not going to believe he raised somebody from the dead. And so this prevailing gospel, it's got to be accurate. It's got to be presented boldly. There's got to be the evidence of the Spirit at work. It's got to be spoken consistently. Lives will be transformed, and that word will spread mightily. And then this prevailing gospel will do something that no other message in the earth can do. None. I've never, and, I, and I, maybe I'm speaking ignorant, I've never seen somebody come to me and they said, man, the Broncos got Peyton this year. I'm moving to Denver. But watch what happens in 21 and 22. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. The prevailing gospel took a hold of that man's life to which he'd say in Romans 15, I want to go, I want to build, I don't want to build on anyone's foundation, I want to go. That he had a personal mission for Jesus. It will inspire people to go to unreached people groups. Do you have a personal mission for Jesus? What is it? If you don't have a personal mission for Jesus, may I ask, what are you doing? I think I mean, there are a lot of people just going through life, and, and I stop and I pause and I say, thank you, Garrett, for that first song, just talking about the questions asked and our brokenness and all this, and the answer is Jesus. But people go through life not with not much passion because they've never been challenged with this do you want to see Rome? Where's your Rome? Where are you going to go? What will happen when the, the Trinitarian God who works through his word by the power of the Spirit gets into the heart of a Christian and they say, I want to go to Rome. Where's your Rome? Paul's at that time was in Ephesus. And in verse 22, he had resolved in his own mind to go, but he recognized, I can't leave a job undone. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. I can't leave the ship without good help, so I'm going to wait. And here's what happens. This is where you get a picture of a pagan culture. About that time there arose, and I love the language here, no little disturbance concerning the way. Everybody's talking about the way. This Jesus, and these people are following Jesus, and they're giving up uh, all their lucrative materials, and they're burning these magic books, and they're going after this man named Jesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who had made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So here's a man making money off bobbleheads for the Artemis. Who is Artemis? Artemis is also known as the goddess of Diana. So there was a 60-foot statue of her. There was a, a religious stadium, so to speak, to her that was bigger than the Parthenon. And so she was big business in Ephesus. And these he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. We're making money off these bobbleheads. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, that this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying the gods made with hands are not gods. Our business, our way of life is in trouble. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And so this prevailing gospel message is upsetting the status quo. It's upsetting the economy. It would be, it would, seriously, I called a buddy of mine. I said, well, give me, I'm thinking through some illustrations here. And I said, help me think through this. And he said, it would be the equivalent. He used the, the name Dallas Cowboys, but 
that's too distant from you. So we'll use the name Broncos. But it would be as if people didn't want to go today at 225. They're like, no, we're going to Eagle to hear this guy. And it's not even about this guy because he's got no hair. But he preaches from this word and he's talking about this Jesus. We're not going to go watch the Broncos play. And I'm not even going to wear my shirt that says whatever, um, Thomas or Manning, right? I'm not even, and everybody's all of a sudden, well, wait, if they don't go to the game and they don't buy these tickets and they're not buying, I mean, the economy of the Denver's going to, no little disturbance would happen in Denver. If, could you think about that? How cool would it be? It's like, no, I'm going to iron, what is that church in Broomfield? Flatirons. I'm going to Flatirons. I'm going there. I'm going down to Alexander Strzok's church there in Littleton. And we're at no, but there's like a Denver shuts down and nobody's going to the Broncos game. They're all going to church. Whoa, that would be really cool. But here's what, how the culture responds, 28. And when they heard this, when they were hearing the economy might tank, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so that the city was filled with confusion, they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's commandants in trouble. They're just grabbing anybody. And you love Jesus? Oh, my. And they're going into this stadium. It's just it's sports authority field. Put your mind there now. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Here's Paul. He wants to go, and he's like, I've got to stand up for this. And now some cried out one thing, some another. And for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them didn't know why they had come together. That verse right there blows me away. Oh, by the way, great is Artemis, Diana. She's the fertility goddess. She's the uh, mistress of wild beasts. She's the one that people would go to when it came to fertility. She was big business. And it just blows me away how similar there is a big business today that deals with fertility, that's got great confusion cast on it now, and people are saying things that they don't even know what they're saying. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Pay attention to the news. Idols aren't so distant from us. Big business and fertility isn't so distant from us, and there's a lot of confusion. And so in 33, some of them prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. Apparently the Jews were like, hey, this way folk, these Christian folks are causing a great big disturbance. Alexander, will you get up and just kind of say, hey, we have nothing to do with it? And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense for the Jews to the crowd. But when they recognized him as a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out in one voice. Can you imagine sitting in Sports Authority Field, people are just just yelling back for two hours. It's like a football game. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so we will be, when you take the good news of Jesus Christ and lives get transformed and they're transformed so much that people don't want to have anything to do with what promotes the economy those days, there will be a disturbance and there will be confusion. And that is where we live today. But here is what the world will try to do today as it did then. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Apparently there was a meteor and it's associated with the goddess Diana. Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For we have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. They weren't blaspheming Artemis. Paul is just saying there is one named King Jesus. And if therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring their charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in a regular assembly. Not this chaos. For we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And so it's happened throughout the centuries, and it will continue to happen until Jesus Christ comes. The good news will prevail. The good news will go out. Lives will be transformed. We will disturb, confuse, and be dismissed by culture. 
but we will win. How do you know that, Job? I read the end of the book. Look at this, Revelation 22.7. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I don't think, I have no doubt in my mind that that verse came here. And does it relate to immediate application revelation? Yes. What's the extended application? All of this. Jesus is coming back. And later on in that same chapter, verse 12, as if you missed it in seven, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. He's coming back. And as John said at the end in Revelation 22:20, 20, Jesus said, behold, he who testifies to these things, surely I'm coming soon. And John says, and I would agree, amen, come Lord Jesus. Our king reigns. He sits at the right hand of God. It's a done deal. If you're here today and you've never accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, come home to the king. Bow the knee so that when he does come, you will be blessed. You won't receive judgment, but you'll be with him forever. Father, What a wonderful passage of scripture. So comforting to know that in our regular work, in the majesty of the mundane, in the regular work of the spirit, through simple things, you're at work mightily. Your word will prevail. People's lives will be changed. The world will be turned upside down. And one day, when you, as you've designed it before the foundation of the world, when you're ready, you will tell your son to go. And you will give him a rod of iron and he will come. And those who have bowed and kissed his feet, you will bless. And those who have rejected him, you will not. I pray for anyone in this room or anyone listening online, if they've never bowed the knee to King Jesus, Maybe they've, they've bought into the almost Christians. They say Christian things. They may even do some Christian things, but there's no sign of the work of the Spirit in their life. I pray that you would do your great work today. Your word says you begin a good work in people and you'll complete it at the day of Jesus. I pray that you would do that. By your sovereign grace and for your sovereign glory, you would do that. And I pray for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would cling to the prevailing gospel that we would hold it with accuracy, we would speak it with boldness, we would speak it with consistency, and we would pray to see lives changed. God, give us what we cannot receive apart from you. Give us the grace to go forward today, bold, kind, loving, joyful. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.